0: My, my uncle was a, a big fan of boats. Um, he, he, just, he just loved boats, but not just any boat. He wanted, or what he always had, was these sort of old-fashioned wooden sailing boats, if you've, if you've seen them. So over the, the winter months, he would often store the boat in, his, in, in one of our farm sheds. And then come springtime, you take the boat, put it back into the water again. The only problem with wooden sailing boats, particularly when they first go back into the water is that they leak a lot. So my memories of sailing with him was spending probably more time with a bucket trying to empty the boat of water than actually doing very much sailing um, over those times. And a boat, of course, that fills with water is certainly inconvenient at the very least. And, well, I guess your feet get pretty wet during the process. But probably more importantly that eventually... It'll sink. Without some sort of intervention, that boat would definitely would have sank. And disaster will follow. As we talked about last week, we were saying we live in a society in which, well, just about any belief or any behavior is tolerated apart from anything that seems to be intolerant. So claim absolute truth, claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, claim that all of scripture is true and our t- culture will not tolerate that. But actually, this is the way of the world. In fact, it's been that way probably since time began. Certainly, when John is writing this letter recording what Jesus said to the churches in Revelation, absolutely true of them as well. So that really shouldn't surprise us overly. But also, it's so important that we do not, that we are not mistaken because this ship which is the church, belongs in that worldly sea. That is where God has placed us. Now it may feel rough at times, it may feel difficult at times, but God has called us, God has placed us in the sea, which is this world. But if the surrounding sea starts getting into the ship without some sort of action, disaster will follow. Let's read Revelation 2, starting at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Saratara, to you who do not hold to our teaching and have not learnt Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious... And does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with a rod, that one will rule them with an iron scepter, and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Another sobering letter, another sobering message to a church. Let's just pray. Father, as we come to look at your word again, Father, we just pray for your help in it and through it. Lord, open up our ears to hear what the Holy Spirit says to us. Help us to have responsive hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. This is probably the longest of the seven messages that was written, yet it's sent to the church that was found in probably the smallest of the cities. Baratara was a, a military city, a town that was well known for, as a commercial centre. It was also had many trading guilds. Now, these trading guilds were associations for cra- craftsmen and, um, and merchants. These people often had considerable power in the city, in the town in which they lived. And where these guilds were found, unfortunately, also idolatry, which is false worship, in fact, worshipping anything other than the one true God, idolatry and immorality were almost always seen too. And sadly, idolatry and immorality were probably the two greatest enemies of the early church. That probably hasn't changed. And this city boasts the great temple to Apollo, which was the sun god, and perhaps explains to us why Jesus, the Lord Jesus, describes himself as the son of God. Maybe just a play on words, but actually this is the only place in Revelation where Jesus describes himself using this particular title. And this city may have had its sun god, but this god, in fact, whether it be any other God, is nothing, absolutely nothing in comparison to Jesus Christ, who is the only true God, the Son of God, the one who alone is victorious. But this message that John delivers is a hard one. It's it's a severe warning of impending judgment against this congregation. And if you thought last week's message was tough and hard, this one's probably worse. It's the Lord Jesus' eyes and feet that are highlighted here, blazing and burnishing. His eyes that see all, enabling him to judge righteously. And the purity and the strength of Jesus' feet are incomparable. This is a picture of the Lord who comes in judgment over his church. In fact, over the evil systems of this world. He sees and he stands in strength, in victory, in judgment. But in many ways, this church in Saratara was an impressive church. The believers were a busy lot. They were involved in sacrificial ministry for the sake of others. And Jesus praises them. He praises them for their good deeds, for their love, for their faith, for their service, for their perseverance. And what is more, these works were actually increasing, characterized by their faith, by their love, by their patience. So this church was certainly not guilty of mere religious activity. In fact, these are the signs of a maturing church, of church of, of Christians that are growing in their faith, that they're developing, that are these this is the mark of growth. In fact, we would do well to be exhibiting some of these characteristics as well, to developing in these areas, doing more than we did at first. And a faced value this looks like a great church in many ways this was a very very healthy church but we get to verse 20 and jesus words say this nevertheless i have this against you you tolerate this woman jezebel you call who calls herself a prophet by her Teaching She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And though the Lord Jesus found much to praise this church for, he saw their love, he saw the way in which they served and loved one another and cared so much for one another, the Lord also found much to expose and to condemn within this church because no amount of loving and sacrificial works can compensate for the tolerance of evil. See, the church, this church, was permitting false, this false prophetess, to influence the people, to lead them into compromise, a person that they call Jezebel. This church, this ship, is taking in water. Of course, It's very unlikely this person was actually called Jezebel since such an infamous name from the Old Testament would never be given to a child. At least, you'd hope it wouldn't be given to a child. Nobody could be that cruel, surely. She may not even have been female, of course. This name is symbolic. In fact, it refers to, of course, the Old Testament queen Jezebel. She was an enemy of God and of God's people. So we can read about her in 1 Kings chapter. 16, right through to to chapter 19. Again, we're not going to read it through because of time. But this idolatrous queen had enticed Israel to add Baal worship to their other religious ceremonies. Let me just read you a few verses, just to give you a flavor of what sort of woman this woman was like. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31, we read that King Ahab... Not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel. That was his ultimate downfall. And he began to serve Baal and to worship him. Then as a result of Jezebel's hatred of God and the prophets of God, we read in chapter 18, verse 13. This is Obadiah, one of the prophets, talking to Elijah. He said, haven't you heard, my lord? What I did when Jezebel was killing the servants of the Lord, I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and with water. Jezebel was out to cause as much damage to God and to the people of God. She took the prophets, she massacred as many as she could get her hands on. And then even after a generation, her vile legacy carries on. In Second Kings chapter 9, verse 22, where Joram, who is Jezebel's son, he saw Jehu and he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all of the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abounds? This was an evil, manipulative, ungodly person. So in the New Testament version of Jezebel who seduced God's people, who introduced sexual immorality and false worship into this church in Thyatira, this may well have been a literal person. In fact, it probably most likely was. But actually it could have been just a picture of the spiritual unfaithfulness that was going on within that church. Similar to what we read off in in, in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, you know the story, go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And in that picture, Hosea's home life became this prophetic, symbolic picture of the state of the nation of Israel at that particular time. So this idolatry and this compromise that's going on in the Bible very often became a picture of adultery and unfaithfulness to the marriage vows. Again, the prophet Jeremiah picks up this, in fact gives a good example of this. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6, he paints the picture concerning God's chosen people, Israel, saying this, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high tree and made every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. God is jealous for his people. God will not compromise. He will not share you with anything or anyone else. And he is jealous for his people in exactly the same way that I would expect Rachel to be faithful to me and that she would expect me to be faithful, for, faithful to her, so does God expect his church and expects you to be faithful to him. Not to run around with anything or anyone else. He wants all of your heart, absolutely and completely. And Tara was unfaithful. It hadn't given its everything over to God, and there are many there who were doing much, much less. So what happened here in Saratara is not dissimilar to the doctrine of Balaam that we spoke about last week, where Jesus condemned the church in Pergamum. This New Testament Jezebel had taught the believers how to compromise with the Roman religion and the practices of the guilds. And she, well, she was very persuasive. In fact, it might not have been that difficult for her to to persuade and convince some of these Christians to compromise, because if they chose to listen to her, it probably meant that many of them would get a much easier life. They would probably end up keeping their jobs. They'd probably end up maybe even saving their lives. But this church had so many compromising holes in it that it was beginning to sink And it was taking in water big time. But to make matters even worse, not only was this church tolerating evil, but they were so proud and they were unwilling to repent. And to use that shipping metaphor just one final time, it's bad enough that this church is taking in water, but it would appear that this church knows that it's sinking and it doesn't care. In fact, it's not prepared to do anything about it. And Jesus has given this prophetess a chance to repent, yet she has refused. Now he's going to and asking her followers and giving them an opportunity to repent. And Jesus' eyes of fire are searching out their thoughts and their motives. And he knows their hearts. Just as he knows our hearts and your hearts. He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows our very next thought. And he will not make a mistake. In fact, the Lord threatens to use this church as a solemn example to all the churches that they must not tolerate evil. And Jezebel and her followers will be sentenced to tribulation and to death. And this language is strong. It is uncompromising. Jezebel's bed of sin will become a bed of sickness. God will judge this false prophetess and her followers once and for all. And it's sobering. It is perhaps of some small consolation to us today that the pressures that we face have been faced by churches down through the ages. So when you are tempted to sin or to compromise or you just feel as if you're bombarded by sexual imagery or you feel under pressure to conform to the world's standards rather than following biblical standards, You are not alone. You're not the only person who faces such pressures. There are many others within this room, across the wider church, and actually down through the generations, who will be facing and have faced exactly the same pressures that you face. But you do need to hear the challenge of the words of Jesus. You see, the many good qualities of this church did not make up for the compromise. And when the Holy Spirit convinces or convicts us of our sin, our natural instinct sometimes is to justify our own behavior. We think, you know what, but look at all the good things that I have been doing. Look how impressive I've been in those areas within my life, as if somehow we can balance up our sins and, and God will Will look differently upon them. Listen, God hates sin. He hates compromise. Even a little bit. That's not the way things work. In the same way that if a doctor was to say that you had cancer, you would not even think of objecting by saying, you know what, I've got great eyesight can see so well. Listen, the fact how well you can see makes no difference. If you've got a bit of cancer there, you've got to deal with it. Jesus calls for no compromise. He wants all of your heart given over to him completely, 100%. This is the message that Jesus sends to this church, that he sent to the church in Pergamum last week. Jesus is serious. But please note that not everybody in this church was unfaithful to Jesus. And Jesus sees them. And Jesus notices them. He doesn't ignore them or have any oversight over them. He, He sees them and he's got a special word for them. There are those in this church who have separated themselves from the false doctrine and from the uncompromising practices of Jezebel, which Christ denounced in such strong terms. There are those who have not learnt the so-called dark secrets of Satan. And look how graciously and how compassionately Jesus speaks to them. The Lord Jesus has got no special demand to make over them. He places no extra burden upon them. He simply wants them to hold fast to their resistance of evil. He says, till I come, till I return. And Jesus is not suggesting that they develop some sort of whole new list of rules or new legalism that for Christians to follow, which is actually very often the way in which most of us react when we're faced with the, the challenges of this world. We can so easily invent a whole new form of rules and expect Christians to follow them. We end up banning things that the Bible never bans. We, we actually end up imposing rules that are just simply not from God. And Jesus does not ask anything of these Christians that is not already expected of every single Christian to serve the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. They needed to continue in their, in their good deeds, in their love, in their faith, in their service, in their perseverance until Jesus returns and then he would reward them for their faithfulness. And for the first time in Revelation, Jesus mentions that he is coming back for his church to take them home to be with him. This is the promise of Jesus, the one who can be trusted. And Jesus finishes off this message, this letter, as he does all of the other ones, with promises. Promises to those Who will remain faithful to those who will overcome. And there are two promises here at the end. The first is this they are promised authority over the nations. Now, this is the authority that Jesus tells us he received from the Father himself. In fact, many of Jesus' words here come straight out of Psalm 2. Jesus is the fulfillment of this scripture as he is the fulfillment of much of scripture. And as king of God's people, he represents them before the Father. And as Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth, he will reign with righteousness and perfect justice. But as followers of King Jesus, we will live and we will reign with Christ. And the amazing thing is that just as King Jesus rules, so his people will also rule. And we will see that those who overcome are given the right to sit on the very throne with Christ, with Jesus. Revelation 3 verse 21. Such is the victorious nature of his reign. In fact, he rules with a rod of iron. Again, this is the prophecy from Psalm chapter 2. Let me read you just two verses, verse 8 and 9. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of this earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And by contrast, rebellious people will be like clay. They will be easily broken in pieces. But those who remain faithful, will overcome. And Jesus has promised. You remain faithful. You are the overcomers because Jesus Christ is victorious. The second promise sort of extends from that really. And Jesus says, Jesus will give them the morning star. That is Jesus Christ who is the bright and the morning star. The morning star stands as a symbol of messianic victory. So in Revelation 22, verse 16, we read, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches. I am the root and the offering of David." and the bright morning star. And this promise in chapter 2 and verse 28 is that God's people shall be closely, really closely identified with Christ. In fact, they belong to Him and He belongs to us. Another reminder that, that we share in Christ in Jesus' rule. And it doesn't matter how small that number may be, at the moment, or even how much darkness they may seem to be within the sea, which is the world around us. It may even seem that it has the upper hand completely, that we may even sometimes feel defeated. But God has made this promise to his people. In fact, to the whole church of all ages is called to take note. We have the victory if we remain faithful. The question is, will we? It was the church in Ephesus that was weak in its love, yet it was faithful in judging false teaching and not compromising. And by contrast to this, the church in Thyatira was growing in love, but it was too tolerant of false doctrine. And the message of Jesus is that both those extremes are wrong they need to be avoided within the church and the biblical balance of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 is probably helpful here paul says instead speak the truth in love so that we may grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ if you want to grow more and more like Jesus Christ to grow in your faith paul says speak the truth love. An unloving orthodoxy or a loving compromise, both are hateful to God. And God calls the church to repent, to change its ways, to change its mind. It's not only lost sinners that need to repent, it is also disobedient Christians. And if we do not repent and deal within the sin within our lives and within our church, the Lord may judge us and remove our lampstand. And how tragic it is when the local church gradually abandons the faith and just loses its witness for Christ. How tragic if the light goes out. So he and she who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's listen. Listen to the voice of Jesus, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Listen to his call to overcome. And we must learn from these letters. These letters were given to us by God to teach us, to correct us, to make sure that we follow him faithfully. So let's listen to these letters and how important it is for Christians and for Christians churches to live in victory, to overcome sin within our lives. Listen, overcoming sin may lead to persecution. It may lead to suffering. It may lead sometimes to us feeling as if we are defeated. But the truth is that those who live in victory that overcome sin are the ones who will receive all of God's richest promises. And in the end, They will overcome not just the sin of this life, but they will come to a place where once and for all, Jesus will conquer all that is evil because he is victorious. And we are called to live like him. Let's pray. Father, Again, we come and just open our hearts to you. And Lord, sometimes your word does feel like a sharp sword. Sometimes it challenges. But Lord, we thank you that it is always there for our good, to bring healing, to bring correction sometimes. But ultimately, Lord, so that we can walk faithfully before you. So Lord, I pray by your Spirit. Lord, come and examine my heart. Come and examine my friends' hearts here. And Lord, that you would lead us on your path. Lord, you've called us to be faithful. So Father, I pray, teach us your ways. And Lord, if we're in need of repentance, Father, help us to have open hearts. To hear your voice to repent of sin and error and Lord to come to you the one who is the the author of our faith the one who loves us so much and Lord we declare Lord you are victorious and we thank you for that and Lord we thank you that we can stand in victory that we are the overcomers because of the cross of Jesus Christ so Lord we come to you And just lay our lives before you once again. And pray, Lord, have your way among us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.